This week's Institute of Ideas podcast is called Our Morals, Their Moralism, and was recorded at the Battle of Ideas 2014 at the Barbican in London. My name is Dolan Cummings. Um, I'm an Associate Fellow of the Institute of Ideas, um, and I'll be chairing the session. Um, the question, I guess, is, is there a distinction between morality and moralism? What, what do we mean by each? We all have moral ideas, moral judgments, but I, I, increasingly it seems perhaps um, unfashionable, even impolite, to be overly judgmental, particularly about um, sexual morality and some of the, some of, some of the, the morals that are seen as more old-fashioned. Um, have we replaced those with just other kinds of moral judgments, or have we become a more relativistic society overall? Uh, those are the kinds of questions we'll be looking at. So to discuss that, um, I have a panel of three. Um, first to speak on my immediate right is Alastair McGrath, um, who is Andreas Idrios, Professor of Science and Religion at the University of Oxford, and also the author of a recent biography of C.S. Lewis. Uh, next will be Dr. Hannah Dawson. Um, if you can't tell, that's on my left. Um, uh, Hannah is a historian of ideas at New College of the Humanities uh, and uh, author of Life Lessons from Hobbes. And finally, it will be Kenan Malik, a writer and broadcaster, author of several books, including Fatwa to Jihad, and most recently, The Quest for a Moral Compass. So, Alistair, would you start? I wrote a biography of C.S. Lewis recently, and he gave a lecture in 1942, and he said this, I want to say Adolf Hitler is evil, but I don't think our culture has a language that allows us to do that anymore. And he was making the point, which I think has come out again and again at this festival, which is that we are very, very hesitant about using this language because we feel we are being judgmental, which is a bad thing, even though we may be making those judgments about things which we do regard as being bad. So I want to try and just open up some things that concern me for general discussion and see where these take us. First of all, I think we're in a very interesting situation. The old certainties of the Enlightenment really have crumbled since about 1920. Religious belief, I think, is in decline. And I think, in my own case as a Christian, I do think belief in God does give you a basis for morality. But I have to say that very often that doesn't help you necessarily sort out some of these moral dilemmas that we find our, ourselves in, where very often you have A or B, and both of those are right and wrong to various degrees. And I very often go back to a line by the German poet, um, Hesse, writing in 1924 in the Weimar Republic, he says, we live in an age which has simply an aggregate of intellectual fashions and the values, the transitory values of our day. I think that, that's very, very interesting because it's suggesting that morality is, is malleable, that it's shaped by the culture of the day. And so it does really invite us to ask, you know, what is, is there something deeper that morality is responding to? Or is it just, hey, they think this, I go with it, which is rather like Nietzsche's idea of a herd mentality. So I think there are some very interesting questions to explore there. I'm going to focus on two issues that seem to me to really highlight the issues we're wrestling with. And they both concern me, and I'm sure they'll concern many of you as well. I had a con uh, conversation with a colleague in London. I, I used to be at King's College London before I moved to Oxford. At the beginning of this year, and I was talking about female genital mutilation. I was saying how absolutely repulsive I found this and how I hoped that something would be done about it. And my friend looked at me straight in the eye and said, you know, I think you are being racist. I think you need to bear in mind that we need to be culturally sensitive here and that this may seem wrong to us, but it's fine for other people. Now, I think I came away from that conversation with two reactions, both of which actually are quite disturbing. First of all, I felt that this was clearly an attempt to shut a conversation down, to in effect use a rhetoric of taint. You know, this view is 
racist. I don't think it is, but he was saying that. And in effect, that means you should not talk about it. And I think that is very dangerous because, in effect, it means that you use association to say you can't talk about this. But like the Polynesian idea of taboo, it's off limits. I think these things need to be on limits because they really are very serious indeed. But the second thing was that it seemed to me that what was a genuine moral debate about right and wrong was simply being sidelined into an interesting conversation about cultural relativity. I have to say, that left me very, very unsettled. We use language about right and wrong, but very often we morph these into more malleable, more culturally acceptable characters. So that's the first thing that really strikes me. We have here a clear tension between something I believe to be wrong and something my colleague equally clearly believed to be wrong, which is any challenge to the propriety of a particular culture having its own values, which could not be challenged by outsiders. But there's a second concern I have, and I think this is something that we need to think about more generally. I think all of us here today will have very well-developed, very robust individual morals. That is to say, we thought things through, we feel this is right, we feel this is wrong, and we feel quite good about this. And, and, and those who've looked at the psychology of morals will know that that actually probably makes you a very stable person. I think that's really very important. Otherwise, you know, science doesn't really help morality at all, but at least at that one point it does help us to see that having a stable set of morals is actually quite a good thing for us. But what about the transition from the way we think to the way in which our culture thinks? And Michael Sandel, who's professor of government at Harvard, wrote several books, actually, in which he explores precisely this question. How do we extrapolate from what we believe to be right to what our culture, what our society believes to be right? And Sandel makes the point that actually there is no, today at any rate, in the West, no universal moral narrative. And I think raises some very interesting questions. And the one that Sandel singles out that seems to me to be most interesting is this. Is the state the enforcer of a moral vision? Or is, in effect, the state almost like a referee between competing visions of morality, with the battle being fought elsewhere? In other words, is the state actively promoting, or is the state standing back and allowing something else to go on. And again, that does seem to me to be something that's very significant and well worth thinking about. But Sandel makes another point. And again, I think this is something that's going to really feed into our discussion. And that is actually that morality very often is not, not the primary idea. Usually most of us find that there's something beneath that which articulates, which informs, which reinforces our moral visions. And actually, very often, it's an understanding of what human nature is all about. When we say something is wrong, we very often mean this is challenging our vision of what humanity is and what humanity ought to be. If that's so, it means that actually the whole debates we're having about morality, which I think are very, very important to have, may actually reflect a deeper debate about who we are, what we're all about. And that seems to me to be something that we we need to bear in mind. It's not as if morality is some kind of watertight compartment. We discuss it, and that's done, and it's distinct. Rather, it's interconnected with our vision of who we are, what humanity is meant to be. And my guess is many of us here this morning will have competing ideas about that. Not just a debate about morality, but a debate about who we are and who we're meant to be. And that, I think, just makes it more difficult 
But actually, it's very important just to be realistic about how difficult, but also how important, these conversations are. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, thanks, Alistair. And Hannah? Thank you very much. Um, so, if moralism is a moral judgment that we think is in some sense inappropriate or unacceptable or illegitimate, what is it, I want to ask, that distinguishes a, an illegitimate, inappropriate moral judgment, that's to say a moralistic one, from one that we deem to be appropriate or legitimate? That's to say, what is it that makes the difference between um, someone saying, I think you really shouldn't have killed that person, and we thinking, oh, well, that's okay, it's okay for you to say that, and someone saying to you, I really don't think you should have had an affair with that person, and you saying, hang on a minute, stop moralising, screw you, don't judge me. What's the difference between a legitimate moral judgement and an illegitimate one or a moralistic one? Why is it that sometimes someone says to you, you really shouldn't have done that, and you put up your hands and you say, fair enough, mea culpa, I did wrong. What's the difference between that situation and the situation where someone says, you really shouldn't have d done that, and you say, sod off. Okay, how, what is it exactly that elucidates those two kinds of moral judgment? In both cases, you're being told that you've done something wrong. Um, the f I'm going to look at three possibilities, three ways in which we might elucidate this difference. And um, the first one that I want to look at is the distinction between the public and the private realm. So you might think that it's legitimate to make moral judgments about things that are in the public sphere. So you think it's okay to make moral judgments about taxation or education or the punishment of criminals. They're fair game, we think, for moral judgment. But we don't think it's all right to make moral judgments about things that are in your private life. It seems like there's this sanctuary, this sort of um, special sphere that's immune, that ought to be immune from judgment. But it seems to me that that doesn't quite hook on to the distinction that we want to make, because of course now it is the case that actually this distinction between public and private is being increasingly um, eroded. It's no longer sustainable, in the sense that, for example, we think it's completely legitimate to intervene with legislation in cases of domestic abuse, not only physical abuse, but also psychological abuse. We think it's legitimate for the state to pass legislation that will try to um, incur equality in the home through the policies of maternity leave, and now, hooray, the policy of parental leave. So we think it's okay, actually, to intervene in the private sphere. Indeed, we think that this defence of the private life, of the immunity of the private life, is itself often used as a kind of cover for inequality or exploitation or even violence. So that seems like the, the, the public-private distinction is not going to work in helping us work out what makes the difference between a legitimate moral judgment and a moralistic one. So the second thought that I had, the second idea that um, I want to suggest, is that it might have something to do with the fact that um, in moralism, the thing that the moralizer is judging is actually not a moral matter at all. That's to say it's morally indifferent 
It's not something that involves harm to anyone. And therefore, it's inappropriate, it's simply wrong for us to apply moral judgments because no one's being harmed. It's just a result of a silly, repressed or pinched or problematic prejudice that someone has. It's not a matter of, of, of moral deliberation. Um, so, for example, to think of things that used to be moralised about, but now presumably we don't think we should moralise about, if someone has sex with lots and lots of people, or if someone has sex with someone who's the same gender as them, we no longer think that that's morally salient. We think that's okay. We think that's as kind of morally innocent, if you like, as eating a piece of toast. And it's inappropriate for us to make moral judgment of that thing. Now, while I think that that elucidation does cover a certain subset of things that, are, that, that fall within moralism, it doesn't seem to me that it actually captures all of them. It seems that there must be another thing that's going on with moralism in some cases because, of course, it is the case that sometimes someone can be moralistic about something which is morally salient. That's to say where there is harm that's involved or arguably involved. So, for example, vegetarianism or infidelity. In both these two cases, there's harm. There's a harm to the animal in one case, and there's harm to the environment as well with regard to eating meat. There's harm to the betrayed partner in the case of infidelity. There's clearly harm there, so there is a moral debate to be had. But, but still, we think it's a bit off if you're in a dinner party or something, and someone says, I really don't think you should be eating that meat. We think, hang on a minute, you know, hold on, this is not quite, you know, polite behaviour, or I really don't think you should have had an affair. Again, you think, hang on. What is it then that's going on here where there is harm and yet um, we feel like we're being moralised? What is it that's peculiar about this situation? And this, I think, gets to the, the nub, this is the sort of third thought that I had, that gets to the nub of, of the peculiarly kind of interesting and distinctively problematic nature of moralism. And that is that the moralizer has failed to see or to try to see the reasons that you had for acting in the way that you did. That's to say they failed to take account of all the different contexts that made it make sense for you to do what you did, whether that's an economic context or an employment context or an emotional context. Um, the point is that they fail to take account of your deliberative agency. And that is the case, I think, in the case, for example, of infidelity. There might have been any number of reasons why you did what you did. Your, your own partner might have betrayed you, in which case um, it feels like moralism. Um, and this brings out the feature of moralism that I think is peculiar to it, that it's a rushing to judgment. There's a kind of hypocrisy involved. There's a thought that... Actually, your judger, your moralizer, if they had been in your shoes, would have done the same thing as you. And so I'd like to conclude by thinking that we're all living in glass houses. All of us have done things that we're not proud of. And that's why um, when someone tells us you really shouldn't have done that, when they haven't taken account of all the facts, that we think that they're moralizing. Thank you. Thanks, Hannah. And finally, Canon. Every year I give a lecture to a group of um, theology students, uh, would-be Anglican priests, in fact, um, on why I am an atheist. 
And part of the discussion is obviously about values. And every year I get the same kind of response, which is to say that the trouble uh, with someone like me is that without God, I can simply pick and choose what values I accept and what I don't. And every year I say the same. I say, that's true, but so do you. So in the Bible, as I point out to them, Leviticus tells us that adulterers should be put to death, exodus, that witches should be killed, and so on. Now, none of my students would accept any of that, but other commands, other values in the Bible, they would. So in in effect, they pick and choose. Now, what's this this got to do with the question of moralism? Well, moralism is one of those terms that's easier to use than to define, you know, the measure of his usefulness often seems um, uh, to be the extent to which he cannot define it. But at the heart of it, as, as both um, Alistair and Hannah pointed out, is a, a discussion about morality itself. Um, you can't draw a distinction between a moral claim and a moralistic claim without having first established what a moral claim is and how one defines it. So what I want to do is, is kind of step back a bit and um, take a slightly different approach from Alistair and Hannah, and not talk about moralism itself, actually talk more about morality, and, and to step back and, and take a more conceptual view about this. See, my debate with my theology students isn't really about choice. Few people would deny that morality requires the making of choices, certainly um, not theology students. It's rather about the character of morality and the limit to judgment. Now, in my view is that human judgment is all that there is to morality. For the students, as for most believers, there are necessary constraints upon human judgment, um, placed in their case by by God. It's the Dostoevsky argument, without God, everything is permissible. And in this context, there's something quite paradoxical about the idea of moralism, Uh, something actually that I think both Alistair and Hannah have hinted at. On the one hand, to be moralistic is to attempt to restrain moral judgments through the establishment of certain external constraints. Um, To insist, for instance, that gay marriage or abortion is immoral because God says so. Or to insist that such claims are unacceptable because they run contrary to contemporary uh, notions, liberal notions of human rights. It's also to extend uh, moral judgments to spheres beyond morality to politics, for instance, or aesthetics. Again, usually to limit uh, uh, what is deemed to be acceptable judgment. On the other hand, to deem something moralistic, and hence not an acceptable moral claim, can itself be to limit what kinds of judgments are acceptable or unacceptable. The point is, this is not a, a... a debate between believers and non-believers, and I use the, 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 the example of uh, my discussion with theology students, but it's not a, uh, that kind of uh, debate. You know, many of the harshest critics of religion, from 19th century positivists to 20th, 21st century new atheists, have also expressed a yearning for what one might call ethical concrete. I think, I think this is, this is the, the heart of it, ethical concrete, an insistence that values must be anchored in some not in some transcendental God in their case, but in uh, nature or science or some sphere beyond our immediate accessibility in terms of debate, discussion, dialogue, engagement. 
And what's being expressed here, I think, is a, is a problem of morality in the modern world. It's worth looking at this issue briefly from a historical perspective. There's a paper written by the philosopher Elizabeth Anscombe back in 1958, a highly influential paper called Modern Moral Philosophy, in which she makes a point that the problem with modern moral philosophy is that while much of the world has abandoned its attachment to uh, religious belief, apart from in a, a more, most superficial sense, moral theories, even overtly secular ones, are rooted in concepts that draw their force from a religious view of the world. So in the ancient world, in the pre-monotheistic world, terms such as ought and should related to the good and to the bad in the context of making things function better, whether those things were ploughs or human beings. Monotheism introduces the idea of moral laws and it introduces to the notion of a legislator in the form of God and a police force, a moral police force in the form of the institution's of the church. What modernity does is it, it dethrones God and enfeebles the institutions of faith. And so new forms of morality, whether we're talking about Kantianism, utilitarianism, still view morality in terms of rules and laws, but no longer have any figure to play the role of legislator or in effect to, to, uh, to, to be the enforcer. And so morality, she argues, has become incoherent. And what she's getting at, the heart of her argument, is the problem of moral authority in a modern world. In the pre-modern world, the warrant for moral rules and right conduct came from God or from the community. The coming of modernity, the rise of the market economy, the dissolution of traditional uh, 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 communities, the growth of religious scepticism corroded the ability of those traditional authorities to play that role. So the question arose, who or what should authorise moral rules? The radical answer was that humans could. That human needs and aspirations would act as the warrant for the moral good. And this was the heart of Enlightenment humanism, particularly of the radical Enlightenment. And it was a vision, if you like, nourished by the, the, the um, crumbling of the old, what you might call the God-ordained order, but rooted nevertheless in a faith of a, of a different kind, faith that humans are capable of acting morally and rationally without guidance from beyond. But as we know, over the past couple of centuries, that faith too has become to be eaten away, that um, uh, enlightenment, optimism, the old Enlightenment optimism has eroded and has developed a much darker view of human nature, a process that the history of the past century has only helped entrenched. And the result has been a yearning for an external anchor for moral norms. Um, such a yearning has always existed, as Anscombe observes. It's there in um, almost all modern philosophical um, uh, 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 theories. But it's disenchantment with human capacities grew, so did the yearning for an external anchor to our moral judgments. Some find that in God, others find it in science, some others in, 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 a, in the notion of inalienable human rights. What links all these claims, it seems to me, is the insistence on some form of 
what I'd call moral concrete beyond human reach in which to set values. What I'm trying to suggest is that moralism is not actually a particularly useful concept. And yet, it also tells us something important about morality in the modern world. And I'm suggesting too that we need to look at moralism, understand it in a broader context than that which we normally do. Morality occupies an ambiguous role in the modern world. It also imposes upon humans in the modern world a special and particular responsibility for making judgments, a peculiar responsibility for making judgments. And it seems to me that both moralism and quite often the charge that something is moralistic are both really forms of trying to evade that responsibility. Thanks. Okay, thank you. There's um, plenty to discuss here. Before I come to the audience, I'm just going to um, tease out a couple of issues um, with the panel. Um, maybe starting with, um, if, if I take Kenan's idea of this ethical concrete and put that to, to Alistair, because, Alistair, what, what you said about female genital mutilation um, put me in mind, actually, of something that um, I, I went to a lecture by Sam Harris, the American writer, a, a few years ago, where he talked about um, an argument he had with a colleague about whether the Afghan Taliban's treatment of women is objectively wrong. And he insists that it is objectively wrong, and because his colleague wouldn't go along with that, he felt that she was being um, dangerously relativistic. To, to, to Sam Harris, um, it's science that tells us what is objectively right or wrong. He believes that it goes all the way through. It, it, is religion just a simple case of saying God says so, in the way that Sam Harris thinks the science says so? Or do you think there's more to it when you say that FGM mm. is wrong? Well, let's take Sam Harris first. I mean, you've read his book, Moral Landscape, and it is... It, in effect, says science is able to determine morality, and it does that by, in effect, just ignoring the arguments against it. It's a very inadequate book. Um, I think that the question remains, uh, well, well, whatever we think about Sam Harris, though, and let me, let me try and frame this in terms of the vocabulary that my, my two colleagues have been using. I mean, what, what I'm thinking, you know, what am I meant to be doing in this situation? I think what I'm saying is, look, sold you. I, I don't matter. That There's something bigger here. My role is to try and figure out what my role in something bigger is. And in doing so, I'm both responding to something deeper that lies outside me, and I'm accountable to something that's outside me as well. In other words, I am not the judge and jury of my own actions. I'm held accountable. Now, I think there's going to be a very helpful debate about exactly uh, how you do this. You know, in my case, it would be God. Um, there are debates there. Whatever else you put there in God's place, there are debates about that as well. But I think it, it is very much trying to say that, that, uh, that a morality is not a self-serving individualism, that there is something deeper and greater. It's all about trying to achieve a greater goal which lies beyond any of us. And obviously the, the actualization and implementation of that is going to be quite difficult, but I think most people in this audience will recognize the aspiration, even though the implementation is, I think, at times quite difficult. Okay. Thanks. Yeah, please don't. Well, uh, just, God, yes. just one thing for you to respond to. I mean, you can pick up on that. But does your idea of that, that moralizing is, in a sense, judgment without sympathy, without taking into account the circumstances, does that mean that ultimately the judgment about that is impossible? Or do you think that if, if one takes the time to make a judgment, that's... That becomes all right. Yes. Well, that was obviously the point that I was trying to make, is that there, is, there are situations where we are accused of having done wrong, and we take it. We say, fair cop. 
I shouldn't have done that. And there are other cases where we say, and they might be about the very same thing. That's the point. It might be about the affair that I've had. And someone talks to me about that, and I think, well, you've understood me, and yet you're still making this judgment, and fair enough. And another person might come to me with a particular way of accusing me, and that's going to grate. And that's precisely because it is, perhaps, as you say, a failure of sympathy or of an empathy, a hypocrisy. Yeah, that would be my point. Um, But just to pick up on um, Alistair's um, very sort of fundamental and important point about the grounds of morality, which is obviously another uh, fundamental issue here, Um, I don't, so to take the opposite view, I don't think that um, morality is, as it were, out there or that there isn't any kind of moral concrete Um, I don't think that moral entities, that good and bad things can be discovered like, you know, stones or trees out there. Morality is an invention of human beings. It is, as it were, like a kind of draping of the good and bad over things. We decide, we agree what things we approve of, what things we disapprove of. But that is not to take a relativistic stance. That is not to be sceptical and to say that anything goes because we are reasonable creatures. We human beings have the extraordinary capacity to make arguments and, um, and to say, I think, for example, that murder is wrong because it causes, you know, <laughs> obvious harm. Um, and, and that's why it's wrong. And then someone might come back to me with a counter-argument and say, but what about, for example, you know, the assassination of dictators or something. But the point is that um, while, there's not, while it's not that morality is given to us, as it were, in nature or from a book, um, it is the case that we, can, that we are rational creatures and that we make it up, but we don't make it up ir- irrelevantly. We don't make it up relativistically. We make it up on the basis of reasons. And that's robust enough. I agree with that. Um, I I just want to go back to Alice's point that that morality has to be something more than self-serving individualism. I agree, and I'm sure Hannah agrees uh, with me too. And and it's one of the arguments, I fear, that um, those who um, argue against a a non-religious moral viewpoint always suggest that you end up with a an individualistic view of the world. Well, I don't have an individualist view of the world in the way that Alistair talks about. I think it's quite possible to think about morality as being neither objective nor subjective. You don't have to... In order to see morality as more than personal preferences, you don't have to see it as being alienated to a sphere beyond humanity. You can see it neither as objective nor subjective, but as rational, rational arising out of human need. And those human needs created um, through us, by us, uh, through our collective action and collective judgment. Um, the difference is this, you know, um, morality is not like saying, uh, to say that torture is wrong or, or that charities are good. It's not like saying that light travels at, I can't remember, it's something like 299 billion metres a second or that DNA is a double helix. But neither is it like saying that um, ice cream is good, or that Justin Bieber is awful. Now, if everybody thought that ice cream was bad or Justin Bieber good, now I might privately despair. But if everybody thought that torture is bad, 
uh, torture is good or that charities are bad, then there'd be a tear in the social fabric. There's a fundamental difference. And I do think that it's quite possible to think about morality as humanly created without descending into a, a kind of individualist uh, view, uh, subjective view of what it is. Um, and part of the problem, I think, in the debate on moralism is precisely that people imagine that in, it's either, morality is either personal preferences, subjective, or it has to be anchored in some sphere beyond us. And it seems to me that both those views lead to what I consider to be a moralistic view of the world. I'll ask you to respond. Oh, yes, if I may. Um, I wasn't saying it's a straight either-or. I was simply saying my instinct is to do this. I feel the need for a bigger informing context. But I think both my distinguished colleagues, I'd like to challenge on one point. You've used the word reason. Now, reason is culturally conditioned. What one generation thinks is not what another. The, The very notion of even common sense is a social construction. I want to make the point that you've both implicitly assumed a sort of homogeneity of rationality down the ages. And you see, that, that was what Hermann Hesse was getting at in that wonderful lecture given in the Weimar Republic, you know, the longing of our age for worldview. Why are we longing for this? Because we recognise that everything is transitory. All we're doing is buying into the, the socially dominant norms of our generation, which a future generation will say, why did they think that was right? They're wrong. And that seems to me to be one of these real issues that I hear what both of you are saying, but I do want to just say I think we need to be historically critical about the idea of reason. It's not universal the same, you know, uh, in the same way down the ages across cultures. It varies. And therefore, in effect, the, the modus operandi you're proposing worries me a little bit in it might bind us into simply uh, a, a sort of socially located construction of rationality. Now, I'm sure that there's much to be said in response to that. That's one of the, one of the anxieties I would have about, uh, about the Enlightenment in general, although I do appreciate the Enlightenment brought many good things, like a critical spirit. But it, it's more um, good, good about being critical about things than the foundation on which you build them, see what I'm trying to say. Quick response, I'm going to go to yeah. um, given that I've, you know, my whole approach is a historical one, I'm, I'm not sure that I would look upon um, uh, ideas of morality in an ahistorical fashion. It's quite possible to say that, for instance, that slavery is wrong, uh, was wrong in the time of Aristotle as it is wrong today, but also recognise, understand the rational reasons for um, uh, Aristotle defending the idea of slavery. I, th- I, think, I think we're doing two different things there. But I'd also suggest that, that you face the same problem, um, which is this. Uh, if you suggest that there is something beyond us that can anchor uh, uh, our beliefs um, in, in some sense, that, that, that we are, um, it is because there is uh, something beyond us that are, uh, we can define um, right and wrong in, 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 in a... In a, in a less subjective sense. Um, you know, there, are, there are Christians today who think that, uh, read the Bible, read certain passages of Leviticus and Paul, and think that uh, gays should be executed. There are other Christians who think, read the same book and say that uh, gays uh, can be ordained. Now, they're reading the same book, have the same God. The point is that it's not God that's telling them one or the other. It is that they have a certain moral framework with, with which they read their holy book. Same true, it's truth, uh, um, uh, Muslims or Jews or whoever. So the point is that where does that moral framework come from outside with which they interpret 
um, uh, their holy books. Without having an, an external framework, they could not do so. So you're faced with the same problem as we are, um, except I'd say that we acknowledge it and you don't. No, I'm sorry. I, I'm, I have to say, no, that, that's simply grossly ridiculous. Um, <laughs> I mean, if you talk to any serious Christian, and I, I'm very happy to represent this one, they will say no Christian believes or should believe that homosexuals should be executed. There's, Christians do not read the Old Testament like that. If they do, they are wrong. I'm very happy to be told that there are many bad Christians around, but I don't like your rather simplistic way of saying because there are idiotic Christians around, Christianity is wrong. That can be made of every single position we have. I'm just saying let's have a civilised discussion about this. The point I was making against you was simply look. If you make a judgment dependent on reason, then you have to take into account that what one generation thought was reasonable, another generation will not think to be reasonable. Therefore, we're talking about what one generation thought to be be moral, not what one generation knew to be moral. It's just a standard problem. I think you mistake my argument. I'm I'm not suggesting that Christianity or most Christians think that gays should be executed. Mm. I'm suggesting that there are a variety of different beliefs within Christianity on all sorts of moral issues. The point is that people come to those different moral views from reading the same book, from having the same text, from having belief in the same God. But they, but they have different moral views because those moral frameworks actually come from outside and they interpret their religion in a, in a particular way. So the question is, where does that moral framework come from? That's the point I'm making. And what, when I'm suggesting you're ignoring it, or what I'm suggesting is that you're ignoring the fact that moral framework necessarily has to come from outside. It has to come from our social and uh, 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 historical lives that we lead. Um, and that allows people to interpret, whether they're Muslims or Christians or whatever, to interpret particular texts in entirely different ways. Um, that's the important okay. issue. Uh, Hannah, do you want to add anything to I think the audience want to talk. Okay, good. Yeah. Um, can I see the microphones? Um, okay, we'll start on the, on the side here. Right, okay. Um, yeah, I don't think that Professor McGrath actually really explained why Keenan Malik just gave a caricature of what Christians do with their own scriptures there. Because ultimately, if you're looking at the scriptures reasonably, what you're going to do is you're going to say, how does, if you're a Christian, how does Christ essentially make a difference to the Old Testament? And yes, because we are the new Israel, the old Israel laws about penal punishments for gays, etc., no longer apply. There's an actual rational grammatico-historical hermeneutic that is applied there based on reason, not based on some moral framework they bring to the text. That's asegesis, not exegesis. But the question I want to ask both members of that panel, aren't they engaging in casuistic question-begging by trying to say, oh, well, we use reason to determine law. Uh, we, we think about harm. We think about what would be damaging to the social uh, society. Why are these things, why are you making those things in some way a norm for moral judgments? In some way, you're appealing to a moral concreteness as well by saying it's about harm or the good of society. Why should it be? Ultimately, if you don't have a social concrete or that unethical concrete, you can't make those kinds of judgments. So what, that, that basic case of Professor McGrath is absolutely right. Thanks. Um, I wanted to uh, raise the issue of the relation between uh, moralism and moralisation um, and risk aversion, um, because I think at, at the moment it's an um, important thing to think about. By risk aversion, I mean a kind of sensibility whereby we think of ourselves as vulnerable and at risk in our everyday lives and our encounters with ideas, the wider society, and indeed with each other. 
And the reason why I'm, I'm raising this is that I think if you take the example of um, sexual relations, um, what it draws my attention to is the fact that you can have a pretty thoroughgoing relativism coexisting with a very, very high degree of moralisation. And I think it's wrong to see the two things um, as contradictory or uh, that the, they can't exist together. So if you look at the way things work at the moment, undoubtedly there's relativism when it comes to sexual life. Anything goes. At the same time, I would say that there are extremely moralistic attitudes towards sexual behaviour, which demand all the time above anything else, however you have sex, it must be safe. And its safety must not only extend to its physical safety, but also to people being aware of, in a um, fairly extensive way now, the potential damage that they may cause to the emotional stability of other people if they have a sexual encounter with them. So if you look at the discussions that are now going on that have been discussed a lot through this weekend about consent, the idea that we need now very extreme um, guarantees of what will happen and what will be safe in advance of a sexual encounter. That's a pretty extreme version, to my mind, um, of risk aversion, which is also extremely moralistic. I mean, it brings with it a very high degree of policing mm. in the form of codes of mm. conduct mm. Um, and you know, policing mm. in the form of the police. So we now have a very policed sexual life, even though it's very relativistic. Um, and I think that's an interesting aspect of the current condition that we're in. It strikes me if, if you take from that the idea that this is predicated on a particularly heightened sense of personal vulnerability where we almost want to wrap ourselves up in a bubble before we have an encounter with anybody else, whether it's in the form of speech or sex. We want to know we're not going to be damaged by that encounter with another person. Yeah. That provides no basis for a moral view, and it provides no basis for moral purpose, because moral purpose has to be based on a different idea of the individual, which is outward-looking, um, seeks to have meaningful encounters with others, and seeks to learn from those. I mean, that's what you're talking about, is, isn't it, Kenan, Hannah? A different idea of the individual as the basis for a moral purpose. Okay, um, thanks. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Um, the man with the microphone, and then if, if this one could be done here. Yeah, please. Oh, um, I don't know how many of you are familiar with the book uh, Moral Tribes by Joshua Green. I know it's a pretty recent book. I don't know if the panel is familiar with it. It's, a, I think, a very interesting book to read in this discussion, if you're interested, um, in which he argues for this kind of common moral, moral currency, right? It's kind of, uh, if you have different moralities, if we can't agree on different moralities, that's kind of, I think, something that starts here again. What are the values you like? What are the ones you don't? You need some kind of common currency to make decisions on a global level, or maybe even within a country, or maybe even within some part of a country. Um, and this is what he argues for. Very, he kind of goes back to this idea of utilitarianism, but he calls differently because utilitarianism has a very bad reputation, of course. And that's that's. So I definitely, I, I'm not going to tell the whole argument, of course, right now. But I definitely recommend anyone interested in this to, to read that. Um, we need some kind of common moral currency if we want to solve any uh, problems, if we want to agree on anything. And, I th yeah, you should really... Uh, <laughs> it's just a recommendation more than actually a point, because I can't make the whole point. It would be weak if I'd make it by myself okay. right now. So thank you. Thanks. Um, if you pass the microphone to the person next to you, um, but in the meantime... Yeah. Um, I think I'd go one step further than Kenan, because he, he was saying that the, he has a bit of a, an issue with the idea of moralism, and he wanted to unpack the idea of morality more broadly... Because for me, morality and um, sort of morals 
are a demand for conformity. They're an attempt to hold people to a standard of behaviour. And in that sense, it's something that's always going to be contested because it's going to be something that you're going to have arguments about and there's going to be disagreements and people are going to put forward different ideas of what is good, what's permissible and how should people behave. And in that sense, if something is contested, rather than putting the idea of morality and having the continuity with the religious tradition out of which it emerges, I would suggest that the the contested nature of it means that it's much more like politics. And therefore, in that sense, the, the idea that we should have some kind of morality that is grounded and therefore uncontested it's not going to work because morality is something that we're going to have arguments about. And therefore, today, I think it's much more useful rather than to confuse it with a religious tradition that goes back a long way. The way that Kennan and Hannah are talking about it makes it much more similar to politics than the traditional ideas of morality. Okay, thanks. Uh, here, and then we'll come back to the panel for responses. I didn't know that this uh, last comment was going to come, but I do agree that there is, of course, a, a, a link between morality and politics, because politics is supposed to be an expression of what society as a whole thinks morality is. It's, it, they're linked. Of course they're linked. Uh, my interest is, is this external anchor that we have been coming, talking around uh, and, and what the external framework, almost like an, a moral absolute, could be. Uh, the, only, uh, the only hint in that direction we've had so far was from Hannah, where she brought in the, uh, the idea of, well, does it harm? Does it do any harm? But you've immediately relativised the whole thing by putting the, the, the idea of context into it. So if we put the cultural context into this, for example, FGM becomes relative. Right? If we are putting, in addition to that, the individual versus the greater good into it, it becomes even more relative because what might be harmful to one person, and I avoid it, but then immediately I cause harm to hundreds of others. You know, ISA, for example, might argue that what they are doing is moral because it is for one particular good, but it's harmful to, to loads of others. So the, the moment we put context in, we relativise. I'm looking for... I'm, I'm sorry, I'm a bit of a black okay. and white person, but I'm looking for the moral absolute. Can we find it, please? <laughs> <laughs> OK, Hannah. Um, so in immediate response to your last point, um, I, and I too, I yearn for the moral absolutes, but, but, but I would just say immediately with regard to the question of FGM, I think there's nothing relative or negotiable about the harm that's caused in mutilating a woman's genitals. That um, seems very non-negotiable to me. And, and that connects up to the first point that was made very well by you, sir, um, about the question of why it is that harm should be some kind of, why harm should be some sort of source of, um, of, of moral concreteness. And I suppose the point there is, I mean, it's only ever going to come down to human agreement and human argument. I totally take that. But the fact is that across the world at different times people have conceded, have agreed with each other that harm is a bad thing. We've, had, we've been able to um, launch reasons for that. We've also all had kind of common strong intuitions that harm is a bad thing. We tend to be repulsed by murder um, and, and, and if you're not repulsed by murder, then you're thought to be a psychopath outside the norms. And, and so that suggests that although, of course, you know, morality, I think, you know, if you're not religious, is always going to grow on stony ground, 
There's no other place it's going to come from. But insofar as it grows in the kind of the collective um, reasoning space that human beings amazingly find with, between each other, then we, we can find it there. And that's why harm seems to have such a purchase, because people agree that it's, it's a bad thing. Um, I thought your point was brilliant about... Um, about sex and, and... I mean, I wouldn't say that we're relativistic now about sex because I just don't think it's a moral issue in the sense that it's not like I think sex is good or bad and anything goes in that sense. It's that it's really not morally salient. But what, of course, is morally salient, and this is the point that you were making, is, um, is the question of consent. And that's a very complicated, complicated question. And it might, in many cases, seem as though people are consenting, but it's not clear that they're doing so in a kind of full way. And there, absolutely, we need to start to push back with a kind of moral um, censure. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I could count, yeah. Uh, I didn't explain myself. <laughs> <laughs> OK, can I? Um, just want to go, go back to this point about morality and politics that mm. someone raised, because I do think it's very important, and I do think um, some of the problems in, that we have today is because of the... Uh, transform, uh, transform relationship between morality and politics. Um, again, if you look at the distinction between the pre-modern and the modern world, it's, it's quite interesting here, because in the pre-modern world, morality and politics were inextricably linked because social structures were seen as a given. So morality was about how to define right and wrong behaviours within a given structure of society. In the modern world, the coming of modernity... Politics and morality become inextricably linked, but for the opposite reason, because social structures aren't seen as given, but are contested, uh, politically, physically contested. And the notion of ought, what, how, what society ought to be, how we ought to be, becomes as much a political as a moral issue. And, and the notion of the good, the good society, becomes defined in terms of, of politics and, and social transformation. Part of the problem, I think, is, of course, is that politics itself has become so narrowed in, in, in recent uh, 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 decades. And that the, the concept of social transformation, um, people have become disillusioned, disenchanted with, with those possibilities. And in that process, on the one hand, politics has become more moralistic. If you like. The language of morality has increasingly invaded uh, the sphere of politics. And on the other hand, morality itself has become detached, unstitched from the project of social transformation. And I think in those, both those things, um, uh, uh, there's a major problem in the way we think about what morality is, how to define morality, how to define the good. All those things have suffered as that relationship between politics and morality has transformed in, in, in recent decades. Um, Alistair, let me add um, a question for, uh, of my own for you, um, which is, talking about Christianity, one of the interesting things about Christianity as a religion is that it can, could be understood as a critique of moralism, in fact, of you know, where Jesus rules against the Pharisees, even um, in, in, some, in Paul's epistle to the Romans, when he talks about the dietary requirements, he's very um, keen to encourage people not to be self-righteous about it. So, yes, we know you don't have to observe these old Jewish rules, but you shouldn't look down on those people who do. You should even go along with them if it, if it helps them. Um, this seems to me a more kind of reasonable, relational um, type of, of, moral, of moral thinking than following rules from the outside. I mean, is, is, is that, do you recognise that as well, I, I recognise that. I mean, he doesn't use the word moralism, but yep. you've got your finger on it. I mean, basically, it, it is 
not rules for rules' sakes, but basically this is something that, that is good. And, and I, I, I have no difficulty with that. I think that one of the issues here is that um, I hear the criticisms being made of religion, but let me, just, let me just tell you, as someone who used to be an atheist and became a Christian, I think one of the things I find is that it's not simply I have a vision of what the good is, but I also feel motivated and inspired to try and live it out. And it's not so much you know, this rule, that rule. It's much more wanting to, to love people and trying to do it that way. But if I could pick up on two points from the audience, I love the point about morality and politics up there. It seems to me that there's very little evidence that politics has become moral, but I think there's a lot of evidence that morality has become more politicised. And I think you know, it's very, very helpful to apply a sort of sociological in-group, out-group approach, where very often what we're finding in our culture is that there are certain in-groups who define themselves with certain moral values. If you don't hold that or stick to that, you're out. And so there's a certain sense in which we have almost, you know, like moral values being like, like policies. And I, I very much regret that. I think I, think I see it happening, and I, I do wish it wouldn't happen. But uh, it does mean that, that very often a, a perfectly good discussion about the nature of morality does become hijacked by political agendas. And I very much like your point about um, the... Um, the transcendent basis of morality. And again, um, I, I would argue that, that uh, using lines very similar to Iris Murdoch, that you, know, that you can give a very good defense of that. You don't have to believe in God to do that. You know, there's a whole, the whole genre of philosophies would say, unless you have some transcendent basis for morality, you, know, you, you are in some difficulty. And of course, if you're religious, you would add on to that. But it does seem to me that, that one can nevertheless say you can have a transcendent basis for morality which is sensitive to the context in which you exist. So I think the dialectic between, um, you know... I mean, if I could put it like this, I mean, if I am told to love, which I, I believe I am and I believe I want to do, then perhaps how I express that love in one context might be different than from another context. It doesn't exonerate me from the responsibility of trying to figure out how to do it in this context. But nevertheless, there is something from beyond that context that informs my action in that context. Okay, um, there's lots more people who want to speak. Um, uh, right at the front here, and then um, the, with the woman in the middle here, please. Yeah. I, I thought uh, um, there is obviously one sense in which morality is always outside, um, uh, and that's in that we are a species which exists as uh, individuals, and um, no individual human ever um, uh, creates their own morality. It's, it's just not possible. Um, uh, they always do it in a conversation and it's a prolonged conversation and um, it goes on when you're watching CSI uh, and when you're watching the news and when you're here uh, it goes on in Parliament uh, and it's, uh, uh, it's an extensive and uh, it never ever stops it goes on when you're talking to your children it goes on when you're talking at school uh, at, at work and all of, all of those engagements you'll find very very quickly you're constantly comparing and making moral judgments and trying out moral judgments, you say, oh, my God, did you see what she was wearing? Um, uh, I can't believe it. You know, what he did, blah, blah, blah. And, and, and you're trying them out. You know, sometimes you, you, you discover, lo and behold, that what you thought was obvious was ridiculous uh, because mm. your good friends are, are looking at you like you're an idiot. Uh, and um, uh, that's the sense in which, obviously, the, you know, the religious uh, idea corresponds very closely to our experience because we don't make our own. You know, um, uh, Alistair Crowley said, do as you will should be the whole of the law, which would be really brilliant if you could actually live like that. But uh, where did it go? 
Um, uh, obviously, it's a negotiation, and, it, and it, it's a prolonged and, and a strong negotiation. So it is objective in that sense. You know, there is an objectivity. Uh, and, but I, I feel very complacent. Uh, you know, I, I, I feel really... You know, there are six, seven billion human beings and that they don't murder each other and eat each other's children and all that thing is really compellingly impressive. <laughs> that, uh, all that moral autonomy, those seven billion uh, human beings manage to, you know, like go to work and, you know, raise the kids and all that. That's really the impressive kind of a thing. And I'm, I'm, it, I'm very grateful for the Christian component of that discussion. I think it's fabulous. Um, I'm, you know, I don't mind that it's compelling even. I just, it just seems to me a very important part of that conversation. The bits where it goes wrong, I think, is where the conversation is weak. And I really like the point that was made at the back, is that a lot of our contemporary difficulties and hot points are about questions like consent, uh, at the point where we think, I don't really quite trust somebody else's decision-making. And I guess that means that this conversation isn't going as strongly as it could be going, and it's not really in, 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 inculcating a strong enough sense of actual responsibility for your actions. Okay, thanks. Mm. Yeah. Hello, um, Alistair, you mentioned earlier in the debate that um, Michael Sandel and his views on morality. Um, recently, I actually read his book, um, the, which is called... Um, what might it come by in moral limits of market? Um, and he, where Sandel brings up the problem of commodification. And he, in the book, he argues that um, moral values are constantly transferred into the monetary values and without actually specific mechanism being established. So if both morality and market practices are, were created by humanity, are there any morality and market practices or should there be any? Okay, thank you. Yeah, go ahead, thanks. Um, hi. Um, a comment and a question. Um, if you borrow a lens of social evolutionary psychology on the issue that you've been discussing, uh, values have an adaptive function. So values, according to psychologists, are learned in social interaction, and they are really a shortcut to decision-making. So, A, they're not rational. They are adapted shortcuts to make decisions. Um, and as we, as individuals, go and adapt those values from around us, from communities, then we, then, then we codify them in holy books or whatever. The, the issue I, I see now with following the same approach going forward is that our environment is speeding up. So we need to find a way to reach those negotiated values faster and faster and faster. My question really is, I think you, um, Canon, you, you, you basically almost made that step. You were talking about external anchor, and you were saying that the previous approaches to creating those codes don't work anymore. Do you see a future religion coming up or approach to forming those religions? How are we going to go about finding those anchors going forward. Okay, would you pass the mic to the one behind you? Uh, just like to mention a bottom-up approach. Many of you will not be aware, but in biology, and of course from left circles, the dread idea of evolutionary psychology. But in biology, there is quite a lot of literature now about the um, origin uh, of, mor of morality. And it would explain, because there are, of course, bi competing biological needs, why really the essence of morality very much are competing uh, irreconcilables. Uh, 
philosophers have always maintained that morality is normative. And of course, superficially, if you look across cultures, uh, there is a lot of difference. But if you look at something like the incest taboo, which anthropologists always used to think uh, was something which is purely cultural, it's not. It's, it's actually universal. It is actually biological. Uh, and when you look at moralism, I think we're then looking at uh, setting up in-group markers, talk about biology, biology again, setting up in-group markers or pulling rank uh, in hierarchies. So there is a genuine contribution uh, to, to, to understanding morality by looking at the biology of it. It is in its infancy yet, uh, but I think it's going to contribute a lot. Okay, thanks. There's two more behind you, but in the meantime... Um, I, I really like... I'm not a Christian, but I really like Christians because they, they do go beyond, um, as do um, um, the major, all the major religions. They, they go beyond um, just talking about not doing harm. They talk about making things better, um, and I'm wondering if, um, at the moment, we seem to be quite defensive about uh, morality, if it's, going, if it's just not making things worse. Um, and I'm wondering if it goes back to this thing that Alastair was saying at, right at the beginning, where you said that um, often morals aren't the primary concern, that underneath it's, our, our, uh, it's almost like our view of human nature, and... And then Kenan was saying, he's, he's referred um, quite a few times to an underlying moral framework, so, um, it, which goes um, deeper. Thank you. <laughs> um, and it seems, to, it, it seems to rest on our, our view of human nature. And at the moment, as um, um, other people have said, we don't seem to trust other people because of the last hundred years we've got some evidence against us being um, um, very nice to each other but at the same time um, well I just want to know should, can, can we try and talk a little bit about what that um, if it's just to do I give up it's on the face of human nature okay and we get the point I think okay uh, two here and then we'll have to come back to the panel hi um on the question of moralism, I'm afraid I don't see the justification for moralism at all. If it's, um, if it's a statement, no, we shouldn't talk about that, that's morally indifferent, that's not morally salient, that's not something you should be um, questioning me on. Because everything is potentially morally salient to everyone. What is morally salient is a, itself a moral question. So, why... Can't it um, be part of societal societal debate that okay. everything is questioned, and then the underlying moral frameworks actually get the chance to come into the light and confront each other head on? Okay, thanks. Would you pass to behind? We might, if we have brief responses from the panel, we might have time for a couple more questions. Hannah, I like your um, your distinction between. Uh, a genuine moral decision making and uh, and moralism. So they're kind of rushed to rush to judgment, but then I think it might have fallen into your own, or fallen into a trap of your own creation around, around FGM. So to kind of put a, an argument that the FGM discussion is actually an example of moralism in action, uh, the point was very convincingly argued um, yesterday that, uh, that there is a rush to judgment around FGM, that what, um, uh, what largely uh, 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 you know, kind of, uh, North and West African parents are doing is, a, is an act of is an act of love, is an act born out of love. And maybe 
there should be a bit more understanding about their, their human motivations. Well, then that's obviously something that we can discuss. Um, so, uh, you know, with that in mind, and I think I'd accept, you know, that's, you know, moral judgment should be about interrogating uh, people's reasons and maybe... Uh, uh, you know, moralism is uh, about that about that rush, rush to judgment, which can obviously then lead to uh, witch hunts. Okay, thanks. I'll give the panel a, a chance to respond briefly to those. Um, Alice, do you talk? This gentleman here. I mean, you've you've raised the question no one's dared ask. No one's talked about Marx. No one's talked about Freud. No one's talked about Darwin. Are our evil? Are our moral instincts the product of our evolutionary past? And if so, how much do we carry over? If we critique them on the basis of what do we critique them? Uh, are the criteria by which we critique them themselves the outcome of evolutionary past? Now, I mean, you, you, I mean that is the elephant in this room. And that's why in my chair of science and religion at Oxford, I say we've got to look at these questions because with respect to all of us, you know, we can't have this discussion without talking about evolution, and we haven't today. So there's a very useful discussion that's about to begin. I would say to you that, that you know, we, we, we do have real difficulties in reconstructing this narrative. There are an awful lot of ifs and maybes and what-ifs. And also, you know, maybe this is something that we do need to break free from, and if so, we need a counter-evolutionary narrative. That, that's very, very clear. But nevertheless, that, that is the big question. And uh, it's one that troubles me. I haven't got good answers but I do recognise it is the killer question. Thank you. Karen, you've written about evolution. <laughs> uh, um, yes, I, I wasn't going to talk about that, but let, let me just say briefly on that. I think there's a, a difference between saying that there are, we have certain evolved dispositions that allows mm. us to be moral, allows us to be human, um, and saying that, therefore, we can understand morality in evolutionary terms. I think they're two very, very different uh, projects uh, um, no, ways no, of looking no, at no, it. No, no. Right. Um, I, I know that's not what you said. No, no it's not right. It's just not right. Full stop. We, we disagree. <laughs> um, but let me let me just pick up this point that was made down here, which I thought was quite interesting about um, morality as arising out of conversation. In fact, a conversation across humanity um, uh, and across time. I fully agree with that, um, and I think that's, that's an important way of looking at it. But to suggest, therefore, that morality is outside the individual, necessarily outside the individual, is not the same as saying, therefore, morality is outside humanity. I think there's, there's a distinction there. And the point I'm making is that, yes, it is outside the individual. It, 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 it is more than simply one's personal subjective preferences. But it is not outside of humanity, and it's not objective in the way we normally understand uh, the, the word objective. You can call it transcendent in the sense that it is, there is something beyond us, something more important than us as individuals. And clearly there is. We're social beings. We live as social beings. In my view, is that um, Robinson Crusoe, one could not talk about Robinson Crusoe as being moral or immoral, because morality is about our relationship to other people, mm. um, and therefore an individual um, uh, who lives as an individual without uh, a relationship to anybody else uh, the question of morality uh, becomes almost irrelevant there. Morality arises for Robinson Crusoe when it, when it meets Man Friday. Um, and therefore, uh, that, that is an important point. But the point also, which is, some, which is somebody was raised there, which is, what about that external anchor? Am I looking for an external anchor? No, I'm not looking. I mean, the point I'm making is there is no external anchor. And it is a search for an external anchor. That is the very problem. The search for an external anchor is the very problem because it cuts off that conversation. Because it says that there are limits to that conversation, there are, there, there are aspects of that conversation uh, that we should 
uh, we should neglect because there is an external anchor uh, to our uh, uh, moral values. Um, and it is that, it is a very, in many ways, it's a very difficult position to take because what, what it's saying is that there is no, humans have no moral safety net. And that's the point. We do have no moral safety net. There is nothing beyond us to whom we can turn to decide to define what is or is not being moral. That's an, you know, it's, it's, it's an incredibly difficult position in many ways to take, but, but that is the only position to, that we can, uh, we, we can hold if we want to have a, a, a proper uh, discussion about uh, moral right and wrong. Um, there was one other point I was going to make, but I've forgotten, so I'll leave oh, it. Okay, Hannah. Um, yeah, so I, I, I get it that with regard, for example, to FGM, I am rushing to judgment, but I feel that I'm doing so on quite sturdy ground. I'm doing it so in the same way that I rush to judgment in the case of a absolutely transparent murder or an absolutely transparent rape and I don't, I, I think that um, you know, there are some, it turns out that there are, if you like, a kind of there's a sort of spectrum, isn't there? Um, and there are some things which seem to be very much up for debate and there are others which seem less so and it seems that actually across the board people tend to agree on what those are and, um, and I feel like it would be a very good day when we put FGM squarely in that um, in that category. Um, and so in relation to that, I think that it is very important that um, we push back to the arguments about cultural relativism with some assertion of the view that there are such things as universal human rights. Um, yeah, I know we're... OK, I'll just yeah. take a couple more yeah. and then I'll, I'll, I'll let, you, let you have a minute to sum up. So right at the back, um, in, the, in the middle... Or not right at the back, but right in the middle. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. One of the things that I noticed when I was, uh, I, I was speaking to some students and I, I asked whether it is permissible for a young woman to be promiscuous. Actually, I don't think it was me that asked that, but it, it came up. Uh, I would never ask that. That would be wrong. Um, but what I found interesting was that each single one of the uh, young women said, it's absolutely fine to be promiscuous. There's no problem. But I would never be Promiscuous. And, and it strikes me that the, the difficulty is that we are not having uh, these conversations and that we're excluding people from our own moral universe. There's no uh, assumption of a, of a shared morality and that that's the real difficulty. Is that we should have moral authority over other people. I think that's important. I think that's the whole essence of morality is, to, is that there is some sort of authority over other people. That's not to say you couldn't have a moral conversation. I, I like the point of the front. Uh, but at the same time, we shouldn't fly from moral authority. And that seems to me uh, the real difficulty. What we all have in common is an ability to reason. That's what makes us human. And so, therefore, it's the ability to reason that is the basis of our morality. Shutting down these conversations is the very, very worst thing that we can do. We can assume, you know, that we shouldn't be able to condemn others. When you refuse to judge, you are, you are refusing to take uh, moral authority over people and you are refusing to enter into a moral dialogue with these people. And that surely is the problem today. Okay, thanks. And then finally here, please. Yes, um, carrying on from the point that was just made here, it seems to me that um, the problem with an approach without um, an external anchor is that it doesn't actually help with, um, with decision-making because... 
Um, if we assume that morality arises out of uh, humanity and, and, and out of reason, then if we are faced with uh, two prima facie reasonable people, like uh, you know, the, the discussion about um, FGM we just have then, then you know, uh, how are we supposed to decide, given that, that you are both human? Um, you know, uh, saying that one is um, more moral than the other would, would sort of seem to imply that you know, um, one of you is sort of less human or something like that, given that... Um, given that morality arose out of humanity. So, you know, that's, that's the sort of problem I see if, if we were just to say, um, you know, oh, reason. Um, okay. because Thanks. Um, I think we've only got time for one minute each from the, the panel to close. Um, th- there seems to be a consensus that while we don't want to rush to judgment, um, we don't have to start from scratch every time we make a moral decision because there's a, a, a conversation or a tradition that we can refer to. But I guess the question is what, what is the nature of that conversation and is it... Is it in a particularly weak position today as opposed to in the past, perhaps? Um, so I'll take a minute each from the panelists in the order they originally spoke. So, Alistair? Picking up your point, uh, one minute, OK? Nazi Germany, everything turning to shit. Uh, one man writes a book called The Eternal Return of Natural Law. There has to be something beyond these dictators to which I can refer and say this is wrong, even if other people say I'm wrong. And that instinct has not gone away. It's not going to go away. And that's one of the reasons why people keep asking that question. Is there something beyond on which I can ground my judgments in this world? Thank you. Thank you. I'd just like to make a new and final point with regard to the question of um, morality and politics. So I think that, of course, while politics doesn't want to get involved in the question, you know, doesn't want to legislate about having affairs, clearly, nonetheless, it's absolutely essential that morality is at the heart of politics. So if you think about the big debate in politics between the left and the right, which you could characterise in terms of a debate between the value of equality and the value of liberty, it's really important that, um, that we keep that kind of moral question absolutely central to our political deliberation. Thanks, Anna. Uh, is there something beyond um, on which we can ground our moral values? The thing is, it, it feels that they should be. It feels like if there isn't, then that conversation that we talked about will go on interminably and there can be no resolution. Well, I'm sorry, that's the condition of being human. The condition of being human is that we have that conversation. That conversation is the only thing that we have. And if we're uncomfortable with that, what we're really being uncomfortable about is the fact of us being human. Mm. And that's why Alistair's point right at the beginning, that what we're really talking about when we talk about morality and morality, it's actually a much more fundamental, deeper issue about what it is to be human. It's absolutely right. And fundamentally... You know, my distinction with, with, with Alistair, and probably with Hannah as well, is about how we understand what it is to be human. That's really what it comes down to. That's the ground of being, if you like, on which we, we, we need to root what is right and wrong and, and, and our moral values. OK, that's a good place to finish. Um, so thanks to the whole panel. Thank you very much.